Promo Kitchen is an all-volunteer, nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, please visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. One of the ways you can get involved is by donating to our cause. We rely on our community for financial support to help cover the cost of producing our educational content and our networking mixers. You can donate today right from your phone at promokitchen.org donate. Thank you so much, and let's get started with the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $20 billion promotional products business. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of Common Skew, and I'm joined by fellow chef Larry Cohen, president of Axis Promotions, for this very special episode of the podcast. In today's episode, we welcome Paul Bellantone president and CEO of PPAI, back to the program. Paul is no stranger to the PK podcast as he's joined us in past episodes to weigh in on everything from what he thinks of the term swag to how we will continue to be relevant as a profession. We turn our focus today towards an exciting and daunting topic, the shifting demographics of the industry and how our association is managing this change. Additionally, The traditional norms are starting to shift as companies like Alibaba and Amazon direct their attention towards our industry. We need to be prepared for the day when the cozy conventions of our industry aren't as cozy as they once were. Of course, with change comes opportunity, and that's what we will explore in our conversation today. Mr. Bellantone, it's great to have you back on the podcast, sir. Thanks for inviting me, Mark. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's a great honor for us. So, Why don't we jump in with this question, Paul? The profile of the typical member has changed dramatically over the past few years. Now we're seeing distributors that double as service providers, suppliers that have distributor divisions, and everything in between. How is PPAI accommodating new members that don't fit the traditional mold? Well, I'm going to start by maybe rephrasing your question a little bit. I think that the typical member is doing business the way they typically have. I think what we're seeing is a bit of an erosion on the fringe of how the universe of suppliers and distributors are working. So right now they're coming at us as anomalies. They're not the typical. They may have come in from a different marketplace or a different vertical that they were operating in, or they may not have been part of our industry at all and are just coming in as internet players. That's where the association is considering how do we adopt to these changing models and these new models that are coming at us. There are a couple of different things. You know, the association has guidelines for membership. And if you're right. a distributor, it means that you buy from a supplier and you resell to a marketer, to a buyer. If you're a supplier, it means that you sell product for resale, that you sell to a distributor. The challenge that the association has, well, I get a lot of calls saying, hey, I need you to enforce this. I have a supplier that is selling directly to buyers or suppliers saying, hey, these distributors are going directly overseas and ordering product. The association cannot demand exclusivity to the challenge. To become a member 
a company has to show us that they can do and have done business in that channel, in the typical channel. But we cannot demand exclusivity to that channel. And that's right. by law. There's federal law that precludes us from doing that. Right. So is it fair to say that the way that PPAI governs itself is dramatically different than how other associations within the industry that are for-profit are able to govern themselves in terms of what you can and cannot tell a member to do? I think that those organizations, I know that those organizations have the opportunity and the ability to be broader in how they accept their members and their customers. I do know, though, in, in talking with some of the other service providers and organizations, that we basically adhere to the same channel. I talk to my colleagues over at ASI and at Sage and at Distributor Central and the other member type organizations, and their core membership and customer criteria is the same as ours. Suppliers right. have to sell for resale, distributors buy from suppliers and then sell through buyers. They, too, are limited in the exclusivity side of it. They're challenged by the same things we are. Right, right. And there's always going to be those gray areas. So sure. I'm dying to ask you this question, Paul, because I think it leads from what you were just saying. But I understand you receive many complaints about companies like Discount Mugs and Bell Promo as being members of the association. And, of course, one is a distributor, one is a supplier, and they're owned by the same organization. What do you tell members who complain to you about such an organization or similar organizations to Bell Promo and Discount Mugs? Ultimately, any distributor gets to vote with their dollars. They spend the money in suppliers that they trust. They should be doing that regardless of how the supplier goes to business. There's a lot of criteria that I tell a distributor that they should be looking at when they're working with suppliers. Are they reliable and is their product safe and do they deliver on time and are they credible and are they credit worthy? Their channel of distribution is just one of many items in that checklist. But I do tell them at the end of the day that the company needs to qualify based on that distribution method and whether they do business outside that, the association cannot control that. I hear right. it more and more often. There are more and more companies that are working on the fringes or doing hybrid models, but that's generally the answer that they're getting from the association. And they're frustrated, they don't like it, and they want us to do more, but there's really not a way for us to do more. I heard an interesting quote the other day that there's really not much difference between innovation and disruption. It just depends which side of it you're on. If, right. you know, if you're leading it, it's innovation. If you're being affected by it, it's disruption. And um, Ultimately, all of our members just need to find their place within the channel. Right. So, Paul, since you brought up disruption, I guess this is a kind of a good segue into kind of a, a maybe a little bit of a broader question, but potentially what do you see what are the biggest threats to PPAI today? To the association itself is relevance. It's our ability to continue to find ways to make our members successful in the industry. It used to be, you know, before the internet, if you had a good phone discount program or you were able to get somebody a discount on a fax machine, you were the most valuable person in their supply chain. You know, the association just saved me however many dollars. Once sourcing for those types of products became easier, the association had to find different sets of products. You know, we have a FedEx program, we have ink and toner programs, we have a Sage program, but it's pretty easy for any member to go online and shop and find lower prices on a lot of things. 
So just like our members, the opportunity for the association is to continue to innovate and find ways to deliver value to a very, very broad-based membership. You know, we struggle to continue to drive the revenue that we need in order to deliver those services. You know, there's not a lot of money in product safety. There's not a lot of money in government relations. There's not a lot of money in providing education or awards programs. So, you know, in the long run, it's ultimately finding ways to attract new members and generate revenue in order to pay for things that our members need to be successful. I was going to ask you a question a little bit later on, but this seems like a good segue. I mean, do you want to address some of those things in terms of what you're doing to sort of broaden the impression of promotional products in the overall marketing world outside of you know the traditional world that we think of and more in the advertising world? We do. You know, to answer that question as a go forward, I want to go backwards just a little bit. You know, we've been around for 113 years now, the association since 1903. And, you know, we were an industry that our value was that we were a secret. Nobody knew how to get the product. You had to either, you know, have the book or the search tool to find the product. You know, it's only in the last couple of decades that we've become public because people can go online and find product and really jump around our entire industry. So while we've been successful for over a century, how we're going to remain successful has changed. We are no longer a secretive industry. Anybody can find any product anywhere. So what we've been challenged with, and I think the board and the staff here has done a pretty good job, is finding ways to talk about our industry as an advertising medium and not just a product procurement channel. And one of the ways we're doing that, and Larry, I know you, you know this, the board approved last year an industry branding initiative where they've put multiple millions of dollars into a five-year plan for us to promote our industry. And we've gone out and we've hired a branding company and a PR company called Saxum, who's working with us. And you're going to see ads in Advertising Week magazine. You're going to see videos that our members to connect to. You're going to see collateral materials that our members can send to their customers and their prospects, not necessarily talking about product, but talking about how we stack up to the other advertising medium and why promotional products work. And it's going to be supported by research and it's going to be supported by case histories. That, I think, is the biggest initiative we have going and one that is just based on the results of promotional products. Work Week last week is already seeing some results. The other challenge we have is getting really good data on the size of our industry. There are a number of media outlets that actually rank advertising spend. And we're not part of those rankings. We actually insert ourselves into those rankings. And the reason is, one, we've always done our own internal research, and they usually count it from a third party. But two, the other media is tracked from the brand backwards. So, you know, they're out looking at how much money Coke is spending on TV or publications or radio or event marketing. In our industry, we don't track sales that way. We track sales based on what a distributor sells from a supplier. So to counter that, we started working with a company called ITR Economics, and we're in the process right now of having a third party actually quantify the size of our industry. So when we do go to ad age with our numbers, they'll publish us along with the other 13 or 14 media that we track against. 
So those are just two ways that we're investing in having our industry be seen as an advertising medium and not just a product procurement channel. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think it's going to really be very successful for, you know, kind of expanding out beyond, as you said, just from a product sales medium to really more of a branding and marketing yep. media. Yeah. This made me think of a question, and Larry, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this as well, given your distributor experience with Axis. But, you know, I see it's very exciting that the industry is embarking on these new adventures with redefining us as being a product medium and shifting people's perspective to thinking about us more as an ad medium. But there's also, I kind of feel there's a conflict because at the end of the day, products are what generate revenue for the salespeople in this business and the distributor principles all the same. And how do we move into this advertising-oriented mindset when we go to trade shows and we think about the product search engines that we all use that so dominantly put product first and foremost, like how do we shift our perspective? Because I think that we always fall back into that trap of, I can find this cheap pen for you because I search for it on Sage or ESP or Distributor Central, or let me just do a search and I'll throw it a couple of ideas for you. And it always comes back to the product. So Larry, what are your views on that? And Paul, what are your views on that? Paul, I can jump in here first. Even the way you phrase the question, you know, kind of, you know, you're almost defining it in a way that makes it far too narrow because any of the items that you might search for on Sage or ESP or Distributor Central can be an integral part of a campaign, but it's actually thinking about the overall branding initiative that your client is trying to do. And that includes, you know, all the media, if they're doing a trade show, if they're doing direct mail, if they're doing advertising, and how does this actually fit in? And ultimately, how does it resonate with the end user? Does it reflect what the brand is trying to achieve? Does it reflect you know, a tagline or some messaging that they're trying to do? So that if you think about it that way, then you start thinking about the product side differently because you're thinking about relevance. And yeah. you're not just thinking about, I need to find the cheapest thing because in many ways, and you know, I, I'm a big believer in this, is we need to be an advocate for what we do and help educate our clients about the value of the thing they're giving away and reminding them that this may be the thing that lasts the longest out of all the initiatives they do. So it takes a little bit more work and it takes a little bit more thought, but ultimately it makes you a valued partner as opposed to a product reseller. And I think, yes. you know, that's the, you know, at least you know, in my view of where our industry needs to go to stay relevant, I think that's the conversation that we need to get other people within the industry to start having with their own clients, because then the client will view you as somebody who is added value, and they're not going to look at just for the cheapest pen. They're going to look for the right pen or the right bag or the right whatever it's going to be. Is that the right item? Because we know there's so many choices. Let's find the right one, not just anyone. Right. Paul? Well, Mark, I look at it and say, why not both? So I I followed an exchange that you and Dale Denham had recently about websites. And should a website even have a product search feature on it, a list product? Or should it just be case histories and a little bit about the creativity and the business? And I jokingly responded to one of your posts about it and just said, I think they're both right. If you look at the way that our industry is broken down, let's use $20 billion because it's an easy number to use. About 4%, 5% of our industry does 10 billion of those dollars. And the other 95% 
does the other 10 billion of those dollars. The reality is that there's plenty of room for distributors to go to market in different ways. And some of them are going to go in completely transactional and completely product driven and price driven. I'm not saying that that's a model that works for everybody. Mark, you couldn't sustain your business doing it that way. And Larry, you couldn't sustain it doing it that way. But we have thousands, maybe tens of thousands of companies in our industry that are doing it that way. Will they be more challenged going forward? I think so. But I don't know that you have to choose one. I think that there are companies that have hybrid models and there are companies that are going one way or the other. So yeah. And Paul, I think that's a very well-balanced answer. And if I was to press Larry, or if I was even to think about our experience here at Right Sleeve, which has a lot in common with Axis, is that, sure, there are those days where we're producing fantastic work. It's very strategic and creative, and the project is first, and the product is not necessarily front and center, and we're selling it at good, healthy margins, and the client is loyal, and everyone's happy. But I'd be a liar. And I think Larry would also be a liar if we didn't accept our fair share of, hi, do you have a t-shirt? We need a hundred of them. Can you get it out the door for us? And we need it at the cheapest price. Or here's an easy order, slap my logo on it. Well, of, of course. And I think that as I reflect on what you're saying with regard to this industry branding initiative is when you're speaking about the promotional products industry as this viable advertising medium that sells stories and emotions, and we're trying to be up there with Madison Avenue, I just think it's going to be a challenge if we continue to have people who are exclusively selling on product and price and transaction, because I don't know whether ad age is going to buy that story. So I'm not trying to be down or pessimistic about it. And I know that we certainly have lots of room to improve here at our company. I'm not suggesting we're holier than now. But I just think as an industry, I think it's an interesting question to ponder. And we wrestle with it. The board wrestles with it. Now committees wrestle with it. But, you know, you look at Madison Avenue itself, and it's not like they're going through these transitions unscathed as well. And they're trying to figure out models that work for them. So I think that they're spending less time thinking about whether or not, well, they should be spending less time thinking about whether or not they bought the product, you know, over the internet or they worked with a promotional consultant. At the end of the day, we want to make sure that we're getting the right products, if that's yep. what we're supposed to be doing, into the right hands for the right purposes and, yep. and meeting customer challenges. Yeah, absolutely. I want to shift gears to talk about companies like Amazon and Alibaba and to ask you, Paul, uh, hypothetically, if either or both companies came to PPAI and asked you to become a member would they meet the member criteria? And if so, would they be a distributor, a supplier, a service provider, some strange combination of all three? How would you wrestle applications or hypothetical applications from both of those parties? Well, it's another one we talk about all the time. We have a membership criteria, and I'm pretty confident if you just look at those two companies, both of them probably have the ability to qualify either as a supplier or a distributor. I think they both sell to suppliers and distributors, and they all sell direct, as we know. We would ask them to claim one. Which one do you want to be represented as? And based on that, we would see if they meet the qualifications. And I suspect that both organizations would meet the technicalities of the applications. 
My recommendation going forward to that, and it's a recommendation I've had to make before, is that you allow them to become a member because I think that you want them to see the benefit of the channel. You want them to experience what the association has to offer and let them recognize how other companies are doing business. But I would also recommend that we limit some of the services that they get. You know, the membership is a big umbrella membership. But there are certain products and services that they might not qualify for. Not every supplier member or not every company that's a member gets to exhibit at the expo. And not every one of them gets to advertise in the magazines. So I think we would need to be careful. I think we would need to make sure that they're meeting not only the letter of our bylaws and our membership, but also the spirit of our membership and our bylaws. And then pick and choose the services that they should take part of. Mark, you sat on a task force that we ran a couple of months ago that addressed some of these membership challenges. And a couple of the things that came out of that very strongly were the association's assets are trust, the endorsement that if a company puts their logo on their website, if a company puts our logo on their website, that it is an endorsement. And we need to be careful where the PPAI logo goes. We are 112 years old. This association was built on the backs of those members that, let's use the word traditional, that that were traditional suppliers and distributors. And while I'm not going to guarantee those members that their business is not going to change, I don't know that it's the association's role to facilitate that change. I think we should educate them about it. I think we should give them tools to adapt to it. I think we should, you know, up our game and and the services we provide, but I'm not sure that we should embrace some groups or some very different ways of going to market at the expense of what our membership is intended to be and what the mission of the association is. Right. I'll just ask one more here and then I want to turn it over to Larry for a few. Feeding on what you just said there, Paul, I know that you and I and Larry have had some discussions about the idea of disruption in the business to consumer space. So we've talked a lot about Airbnb, we've talked about Uber, we've talked about Zillow, upending transportation, the hotel and the real estate industries. And not only are we concerned about that, but I just think the entire business press is obsessed and super interested in how these technology-oriented companies are upending these traditional industries. And of course, we look at this and you, Paul, given your role at PPAI, you look at whether something similar is going to come in and upend the promotional products industry. So noting that the promotional product space is primarily business to business. What does disruption in B2B look like? Is there an Uber to B2B that we should be really concerned about? You know, Mark, you challenged me with that question a couple of weeks ago. We were on a call. We were just discussing some of these things. And it was interesting because the examples that I had given you of disruption were all B2C. And you had said, you know, but where does it happen in B2B? So I've been thinking about that. It's happened around the fringes of B2B. Yep. You know, For me, what's happened is that people were consumers until they entered their office building, and then they were B2B buyers, and then they became B2C buyers as soon as they left again. Well, that's blending, and we're expecting the same transactional efficiencies, whether we're buying B2B or B2C, right? The person who wants to shop from you, Mark, may have been online with Amazon or American Airlines, the call before you or on web before you. 
And they're not saying, okay, let me put my B2B hat on now and expect something a little bit slower. I don't think that we're going to have a pure disruption like an Uber come in. I don't think we're going to have an Airbnb to come in. I think our disruption is going to, if we want to use the word disruption, I don't know if it's the right word, but the thing that's upsetting our industry, upsetting the way that business gets done, is the efficiency in technology. That we are not able to provide the same caliber of buying experience. There are some companies doing it, but few of them, the same caliber of buying experience that they're accustomed in a B2C. And again, I go back to the fact that for the first 90 years of our association, you didn't have to. You know, you, you mailed in a, a straight line text and it took three weeks to get it back to you. And, you know, things were faxed and there wasn't this time crunch. But, you know, I just bought a birthday gift for somebody on Friday and had it delivered to my house on Saturday with Amazon Prime. And if I was ordering some t-shirts from you, Mark, I would say, well, why do I need to wait a week for this if I can get a camera overnight shipped to me? You know, it puts the burden on you to explain why not, you know, yeah. why, why that can happen. So I don't know that we'll have a pure disruption like a company come in. I think it's going to be the expectation of seamless transactions and the efficiency that we're seeing on the B2C side. Larry, do you see it that way? or you know? uh, Yeah, I'd probably see it in a similar way. I mean, I think, you know, there's a desire, and I think that might be the right word for people in our industry. They want things to stay the same. They want the model to stay the same. They want the channels to stay the same. And I think the disruption is probably going to be along the lines of what you described, Paul, is that there's going to be some new models coming in. There are suppliers now that don't hold inventory here because they're manufacturing it directly in China, and they're flying it over, and it's faster and they're getting better at it. So that's a new model, all right? It's, right? it's disruptive. And if you don't have to hold inventory, then it reduces your cost. So that's going to be a disruption. I think we are seeing, you know, the t-shirt and apparel industry is changing. And there's a lot of suppliers that are changing with it. I mean, who would have predicted five years ago that you could order one piece of anything and get right. it in a very short period of time? So we've all benefited from some of the revolutions that have changed how our industries have come out. But I think, you know, one of the things that I think about, and I know, Paul, you do, and Mark, I know you do as well, is, is like, we have to make sure that we're doing a good enough job to make sure that people aren't burying their heads in the sand and are trying to evolve as right. these things are happening, which is why I think, you know, Paul, you joining a podcast like this, you know, is awesome because some of these questions are not easy and there aren't easy answers to these things. But I know that, you know, being on the board with you and, and panels with Mark, there's lots of really smart people thinking about this stuff right now. But I, I don't see a disruptor. I think there's minor disruptions in, coming from a lot of different areas that we can all move along that continuum with them if we're smart and don't you know dig our heels in. Yeah, it's been a philosophy that we've been taking. It's not to just do more of what we're doing and do it harder. You know, we all wish that if we could just work a little bit harder, that things would be back to normal, whatever normal was. What we're trying to do as an organization is to point to those companies that are doing things differently, that are being innovative or disruptive and say, look, there are other ways to go to market on this. And what we've been preaching, and it's been part of my messaging with Tom Ghost this year, the PPI board chair, and last year with Rick Brenner, is we need to take an omnichannel approach to how we sell product and services in this industry. And if our customers want to buy online, then we need to have an online presence. And if they want to talk to somebody on the phone, 
we need to be prepared to do that. And if they still want to send an order in by email, then we need to be prepared to do that too. And if they want to text you at 11 o'clock at night, then we may need to do that too. Now you can choose which parts of that you want to play in, but the successful companies that we're pointing to right now have the ability to service their customers the way the customer wants to be serviced. And ultimately that's what makes a good buyer seller relationship. And one other thing, I mean, I think some of the disruptions that we're seeing in our industry and some of the pain are being caused by companies that aren't even really in our industry. If you're doing a company store program, nobody wants to pay for freight anymore. Everything is expensive right. because of freight. Well, you know, because now it's free. Like Paul, you know, you probably didn't, prime member, you probably didn't pay for freight. And the speed at which things have to be done these days are creating stresses all along the system. And I think those are the disruptions that while they're not created by our industry, they're happening in the worlds around us and therefore are putting lots of pressure on distributors to deliver faster and suppliers to deliver faster. And I think that in and of itself is causing major ripples. An interesting thing about the freight conversation, when I think about the fact that I have Amazon Prime, I actually paid them $100 for freight in advance. <laughs> and then I paid an extra $14 because I needed it overnight, not in their free Prime window. So for some reason... I feel very comfortable giving that extra $10 or $12 to Amazon because I didn't have to leave my desk. I placed the order. They're on target more than they're not. And I was comfortable doing it. To me, that's part of their value. We need to make it so that our customers feel that way about doing business with us and not just with Amazon. Absolutely. Changing directions a little bit again. I know, Paul, I get to spend a little time with you down in DC and I'm not going to ask you a question, but I'll just make a statement that kind of ties back into what we were just talking about is, you know, one of the, I think the great things about strategic planning stuff we were doing is that there really is a very strong focus on looking at what we are going to think are going to be trends years out and trying to bring that back to other people within the industry. And I think that was a big focus. But I also know when we were in D.C. that a number of people, and I think it was between 75 and 80, possibly more people, spent a lot of time in D.C., lobbying on behalf of our industry and being an advocate for the industry on the Hill. Do you want to share what kind of the upshot of your time there and what your perception was on the Hill when you were there? Yeah, it was a terrific week. So I'm going to back up just a little bit. All the events we ran over last week were under the big umbrella of Promotional Products Work Week, which was successful. We had a lot of member engagement, regional engagement, virtual fly-in engagement. We started out the week, Larry, as you know, with a two and a half day board strategic planning retreat, which was, I believe it was really successful and and positioned us for moving forward. And then we went into our board meeting and then it ended the last day and a half with our legislative fly-in, our annual legislative fly-in. We had about 80 members and staff there. We had over 250 visits with our elected officials which is a phenomenal amount. We had some groups that went on 16 different visits over two days and some had 10 and 12. And we talked about the things that were important to our industry and our business. We talked about the value of promotional products and that we shouldn't be tagged along with waste, fraud, and abuse when you know the government is looking at cutting expenses. We talked about independent contractors and the role that they play in our industry and how independent contractors in our industry are contractors by choice. If a salesperson wanted to work for a company as an employee, they have the opportunity to do that. But many of them want the flexibility that comes with being an independent contractor. 
We talked about advertising deductibility and the proposed changes that have been talked about in D.C. about reducing the deduction of advertising expenses from 100% deductible in the year that they're incurred to, I think it's a five-year deductibility. And then we talked about small business tax issues and, and really the issues that the regulation and the legislation that's making doing business tough for small businesses. And we would like you know, less legislatively and regulatory driven policy because that tends to be what supports small business. And you know that most of the companies, even the largest companies in our industry, are considered small business when it comes to that. So it was very successful. We had, I think, about 30% of the people who went to lead were first-timers, which is what we always want to see. The goal now is to make sure that they get back out and visit with their legislatives back in their hometowns you know, during August recess and have them become familiar with their local legislators. And I have to tell you, it works. We've had calls from legislators to our members saying, hey, you were in our office in D.C. back in May, and were you the people who were talking about gift items and the deductibility of gifts? The answer is yes. And when we can get on the front end of a conversation that there may be a piece of legislation that they're looking at, and they recognize that they have a constituent that is going to be adversely affected or positively affected by it, we want to get that phone call. And we're seeing that starting to happen for us. So it was a successful week. It's not a very profitable week for the association. It's all expense, but it's the thing that you expect your trade association to be doing. Well, I know it's incredibly important. I have participated in it. And I, like going into it, you're not sure what to expect, but it is amazing how receptive they are to those meetings. And it seems to be a real understanding of a lot of the issues that distributors in our field are confronting. And I think that's a credit to PPAI and this initiative because it really does educate them. And I, I think that part is fantastic. We have uh, 500,000 people in our industry, you know, give or take. And almost without fail, I'll go through the entire day and I'll go on my visits and at least one person in a legislative office will say, hey, I have an uncle who sells promotional products. So I have, you know, a cousin who works for this supplier. So there is a connection. I think, what is it, seven degrees of separation? It's only a couple of degrees separation between their jobs there as legislators and what we're doing in the promotional products industry. Plus, they all use them for campaigns. So they, they know the power of the product. And that's a great way to walk in the door. Absolutely. I'm not sure how prevalent it is, but it seems to be something that's fairly high in the radar now. And we hear a lot about it is consolidation, both on the supplier side and on the distributor side. And just want to give you a chance to maybe address what you think what the potential impact may be on the health of PPAI or no impact at all. What's your opinion on that? We've been following it. I've been following it for the entire time that we've been with, with PPAI. I'll give you some numbers. The numbers aren't exactly corollary, but they're worth talking about. About 10 years ago, we looked at our distributor sales volume survey, and we estimated that there were about 22,000 distributors in the promotional products industry. I went back a couple of years before that, there were 22,000 companies in the industry. And this year, I think we're reporting that there are 21,800 and something companies in the industry. So while there's been consolidation on the distributor side of the business. And we watch it, you know, every issue of Newslink, we're, we're seeing who's buying who and who's merging. The barrier to entry into our industry is low enough that there are constantly companies moving into our space. 
I don't know if that's a trend that's going to happen for the next 20 years out, but we have not seen a dip in the number of distributor participants in our industry. So Halos and Geigers and AIAs and Proformas and all of the network distributors, while they're accumulating, they're growing as aggregators, there seems to be a constant influx of companies coming in, whether they're coming from the apparel industry, the decorating industry, the awards and recognition industry, the print industry, they're becoming distributors. Where we're being impacted is on the supplier side. In 2000, I think we had about 1,800 supplier members. I think we're at 16 and change right now. You know, that's a, I'm going to do this number in my head here, 12% drop over the last decade. It concerns us because we get a lot of the association's revenue from the supplier side of the equation, even though we have more distributors, the suppliers are buying access to marketplace through the association. So when we have less suppliers, we have less companies buying access. So when company A, which is 30 booths at the expo, buys company B, which is 20 booths at the expo, they don't increase their space to 50 booths. They may go to 33 booths or 35 booths. That's real dollars that the association has to account for. And while we're always bringing on new supplier members, they're not coming in at 30 booths. They're coming in at two booths or they're coming in at one booth or their membership is a couple of thousand dollars. So that's just one example of where the consolidation on the supplier side does impact the bottom line of the association. So we watch it. We adjust our budgets because of it. We forecast out and we try to be strategic about it. And it's important for us to continue to bring value outside the trade shows. We have 1,600 and something supplier members. Only about three quarters of them exhibit at Expo in our shows. So we know that 25% of them are valuing the association experience outside of Expo. We just need to make that number continue to grow. Paul, I've, I've got one more question on my part, and then I'll turn it back to Larry before we close off here. I'm really curious to get your take on where you see the industry evolving in the next five to 10 years, and specifically, who are the winners and who are the losers in the next five to 10 years? Wow. <laughs> Boy, this is going to sound like the overgeneralization of the year. Members that continue to deliver value to their customers. I mean, I think every business philosophy or every business book that you read, or even, you know, you look at the companies that are coming in and innovating, they're finding ways to deliver value, to continue to deliver value to their customers. And right. I don't know what that's going to look like. If I did, I would be doing something else for a living, I suspect. But I heard a quote from one of our board members a couple of years ago, and he said, it's better to be nimble than to wish for clairvoyance. So the association strategy has been, how do we keep a healthy strategic outlook? How do we develop it? How do we talk to our members about it? Teach them to be nimble, get in front of them and tell them the things that we think are going to be affecting their business and helping them find ways to become valuable for their customers. Mark, you're yeah. going to find a way to do it, right? Come hella high water, you will find a way to be valuable to your customers. And Larry, I know you're going to do the same thing. And you're the guys that I point to when I talk to other distributors and say, what are these guys doing that are different than what, what they may be doing? And you're finding new ways to be valuable to your customers. And same thing goes for suppliers. You know, right. if, if they're giving more value to their customers by consolidating and merging with other supplier companies, well, ultimately, that's good for the industry. The association will survive either way. That's good for the industry. If that's what they need to do, then that's what they should do. 
Paul, I wanted to jump in just to offer a comment to what I've been hearing over the last 45, 50 minutes. And I know Larry and I have been asking you some tough questions and some of them on purpose to you know put you on the hot seat. And what I find really exciting about how you're responding to this is that at the end of the day, the association's job is to provide a stable platform for buyers and sellers to come together, as well as a platform for education and not necessarily overprotecting to the member's peril. Okay. So what I mean by that is if you were taking the approach of, well, Amazon and Alibaba and Bell Promo and discount mugs and branders and all these scary boogeymen that are not doing things the traditional way, we should block them. We should exclude them. And let's say that was legal. I know that you know there's some legal issues, but let's say that was legal and you were able to do that. Then I actually think you would be doing the industry a great disservice because you'd be creating this, this bubble by not exposing members to the real world. And when some huge disruption came in, we again, we don't know what that looks like, but it probably will come in at some point, then these protected distributors and suppliers would have absolutely no idea what to do. So I think the fact that you're creating a platform that educates people, exposes people to the real world, but at the same time gives access to this marketplace where people can do legitimate business, I think you're providing the best of all worlds. It's a one heck of a tough role that you're in but I think that you're doing a good job with that approach. So I'm telling you that as a member, I'm not just trying to you know, kiss up or anything like that, but I just think that that's my approach. And even though I am concerned about some of these things, I also know to put your head in the sand and to hope that they'll go away is completely ridiculous. So good on you for that. Well, first of all, thank you. The time to be looking at these as an association are when things are going well. We're a growing association we're at 14,000 members this year. Six years ago, we were at about 8,000 members. We have money in the bank. We're well-funded if we need to invest in things to help our members. We have a vibrant community that we're creating. Our shows are getting healthier. And the expo is the healthiest that it has been in years. Attendance is up. We're seeing a turnaround on our expoes. The association is in a good place. And that's the time to start worrying about what's the future going to look like. Once you get there and you're already damaged by something in the marketplace, it's really hard to turn that ship. The second part of it is if the board came to me tomorrow, Mark, and, and they said, Paul, the only thing that we want you to do in your job is to protect this channel, then they might not have the right guy. I'm sure somebody would take that job, but that wouldn't be the right job for me. And I give the board this analogy all the time. At some point, there was a, an association for people who make buggy whips, right? There was a buggy whip association, and, you know, I don't want to be the trade associate, you know, the president of the buggy whip association. What I want to do is, is be able to talk to my members and say, look, you know, th this car thing is coming, and you may want to take some of that leather and make some car seats. You know, there, there are other opportunities to use what you have to bring value to customers, and the board has embraced that. They've said, let's get out there and let's show our members what's happening in the marketplace and let's help them be successful. So I happen to work for a very, very open-minded board of directors that has allowed us to try to stay as in, in front of these issues as possible. And as a board member, I will attest to one thing, that as smart as Paul is, he has 
incredibly smart people that are working with him and behind him and are supporting our trade association that are doing a, a really incredible job. That uh, I think that they're thinking about things in the right way and are working really hard to you know continue to push us down this path. Which you know one of the challenges is is like. You know, things are changing faster and faster and faster, and there really is no point at which you can, you know, watch change and then take a breather. It's, I think, change right now is really, we're in like this evolutionary change where it's just, it's, it kind of steamrolls on itself as opposed to change and then stop. So I think we need to get used to that and be able to move with it. So great job, Paul. My last question for you is, and again, ties in a little bit to the conversations we were having earlier about China, but I know that you and Tom were over in China, I guess probably about a month ago, and just want to get your perspective on things in China from the association perspective and any observations that might be helpful or insightful for an industry supplier or distributor. It's so hard to tell. I'm not as entrenched in that marketplace as the association. I think the association is appropriately entrenched in it. And our, our job is really to talk to the manufacturers there and talk to the trade groups that are there and talk about our channel and say, you know, yes, you can ship product directly over to the ultimate buyer, but these are the issues you're going to be dealing with. It's about product safety. It's about delivery. It's about compliance. You know, the product responsibility and the social responsibility. The best thing to do is work through this channel. It's in place. There are thousands of companies that are prepared to do business this way. So we go there as advocates for our industry here in the U.S., and we go there talking about the best way that they can interact with our companies here. We also go there, this, the second part of it, which I think is more important to us, is we meet with the association executives from countries all around the globe, and that's been beneficial to our members because to be able to have that network and for me to be able to help a distributor find a partner in the UK or to look for a specific supplier in Germany, I don't have the resources to do that. But if I can point them to my colleagues in those countries, that's beneficial. And we're seeing that as a, an important part of the association. We have so many members that don't want to have a global presence, but their customers are forcing them that way. And we want to be able to help them facilitate that business for their customers. So the China part of it, who knows? They're struggling with their own challenges. But our ability to help our members think globally is the real purpose behind that trip. Well, Paul, thank you so much. This was an absolute whirlwind. And we jammed everything into this 60-minute timeline. I know that we pushed a little extra time, but really appreciate it. And Larry, as usual, it's fantastic to do these podcasts with you. And this was a tough one, guys. And and Paul, you answered the questions really well. And thank you for agreeing to be put on the hot seat. So you did a fantastic job. And I know that the PK community will be better off for listening to some of your views here. I appreciate it, Mark. Thanks for the invite. Larry, always yep. good to be working. Paul, thanks you. so much. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen Podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. See you next time.